Remain standing for the reading of the text this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we consider the nature of our destiny. The nature of our destiny is revealed much to us in the nature of the resurrection of which this passage reveals. I'm going to begin reading at verse 35 going down through verse 49, but we'll spend our focus time from verses 42 through 49. Now hear the word of God. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases to each seed to according to its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of the dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Gracious Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit in full measure to be able to give us the ability to spiritually discern the spiritual truth and to receive it not only in our minds, but embrace it with our hearts. And may your Spirit encourage us and apply this to us this day that we might see the glory of Christ and all that he came to do and the glory of his resurrection and that which is still yet in store for us. Lord, may we rejoice in this victory of Christ where death no longer has any sting and the grave cannot claim its victory over us. And we pray that you would guide us here this day to rejoice our hearts in the good things that are yet to come. And may we so live today in the light of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. As we consider this resurrection day when Christ gloriously rose from the dead and changed the world forever, I would like to help us to understand the nature of that resurrection and the nature of our resurrection, which is what the passage is teaching. But the nature of the resurrection also informs us of the nature of our eternal state and the nature of the glory that we look forward to. We have, in some degree, denied the glory and the power of the resurrection and the nature of it in our views about our eternal state. 
And we've often diminished the glory of heaven by our focus on heaven apart from the resurrection. And no matter how simple the concept, we have a hard time grasping the truth of our eternal future reality. But the Scripture gives us a clear understanding so that we are not left, as Paul would say, foolish ones, do you not understand? But it is a great joy for us to understand what is coming forward for us. We tend to think of heaven as some distant place, far away from the earth and completely in isolation from it. I remember sitting at a Ligonier conference a number of years back, and I've shared this with you before. And I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson preach on worship, and he proposed from Hebrews chapter 12 that all true worship happens from heaven itself. Now, I was pretty familiar with the passage that he was referring to in Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 and following there, uh, because I had done an assignment in seminary on that as um, I looked at the particular passage in more detail. And so it captivated me, the thought that, but I never thought about it, what he just said. I, I, the thought captivated me that we only worship in heaven itself. Well, what about today? What about what's going on now? And I was captivated with that. And so after studying out, I came to see that's exactly what the scripture teaches. And that's why we have on the very front cover of our liturgy every Lord's Day that passage. But I had pictured for the longest time that what that means is we're somehow mysteriously and spiritually transported to some far off place. And while I do believe what's going on here today is is mysterious, mystical in the sense that we can't understand it, and spiritual, I do not think it is as far away as we once thought, or at least as once I thought. Jesus told His disciples And it carries on true for us that He will always be with us and He will never leave us nor forsake us. And after His bodily resurrection, it helps us now to understand more what He means and even the eternal place that we will inhabit. The thought about heaven alone as being our eternal home in some far off place has had a profound negative implication on the doctrine of the physical resurrection, not only of Christ, but of our resurrection. And yet, it is what we have been most indoctrinated with. It has been the subject of many hymn writers. You will probably never sing a hymn quite the same. You will always have your antennas up after this message. From our hymns, we learn much of our theology, and really, because we sing so much of the theology, that is really what trains and forms our particular understanding, particularly our eschatology. I was actually aware of this, acutely aware of this, just recently, as I'm beginning to uh, hear, and I, was, I had a, a station on, uh, um, an internet station, I was listening to a lot of hymns, and a lot of the hymns really began to stand out because of the words that were not very biblical on this particular matter. Let me just give you a few examples, and these are just a few because they are just replete away in a manger. 
Now, I'm not here to just to diss all of our old hymns, okay? <laughs> but I do think we have to be careful what we've been formed with. Away and, and fit us for heaven to live with the there. And there's an implication there. When the roll is called up yonder, I almost don't need to comment on this one, <laughs> but it says, on that bright and cloudless morning when the dead and Christ shall rise. That's our resurrection. And the glory of His resurrection share when His chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies and the roll there, up yonder, uh, is called I'll be there. Way over there. In the eternal future estate in the resurrection. Some hymns actually interpret the resurrection without the body, a very docetic and Gnostic uh, heresy. Must Jesus bear the cross alone? The, script, uh, the hymn says, O resurrection day, ye angels from stars come down and bear my soul away. The old rugged cross, verse 3, then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. Just a closer walk with thee. I know, I'm stepping on a lot of your old hymn favorites, aren't I? When my feeble life is o'er, time for me will be no more. Guide me gently, slavely o'er to thy kingdom shore, to thy shore. The kingdom, way over there. An ethereal, abstract place. Come, Christian, join to sing. On heaven's blissful shore, His goodness will adore, singing forevermore, Alleluia, Amen. Amazing grace, the last verse. Actually, it's not the last verse, but it's the last verse we have in our hymnal, thankfully. Verse 5. When we've been there 10,000 years. So much of our hymnody portrays the final destiny as a transferal from an earthly existence to a heavenly one. A.W. Tozer is reputed to have said, Christians don't tell lies, they just go to church and sing them. <laughs> That's probably a bit harsh, okay? So we won't quite uh, embrace the totality of the implication there, but I think that there's some truth there that we need to be careful. When we die and our body returns to the dust, our spirit does go to be with the Lord in heaven. But that heaven is not far away, and that heaven is not our eternal destiny. That is not our final trajectory. The bodily resurrection of Christ is a revelation of our eternal state for which we long, and it's not like those hymns. Christ did not receive His glorified body in heaven, but here on earth. And what he received in his glorified body is a body made fit for that eternal realm. And he will come back in that body as he promised he would do. And he's not coming back and going back. He is coming back to stay. And one day when he comes back to the earth, we will be raised up in glorified bodies to inhabit the eternal realm. We're here on the earth, but enveloped in heaven, where heaven comes down and it merges with the earth here glorified. And here we have the last two chapters of the Bible informing us that this heaven comes down to the earth, they come together, and that will be our eternal realm. And that's what Christ's resurrection reveals to us. Verses 35-41 through 41 
Paul gives us in the Spirit an agricultural example to illustrate the difference between the different natural bodies and our future resurrection body. Our natural body must die in order to be raised up into a glorified body. That's what he is speaking about in verses 35 and 36 about a grain, a seed, which is goes into the ground, it dies, and it brings forth a different kind of body. But the different kind of body is identified with the same thing, the same body, the seed body, that is sown. It's identifiable and organically connected to the body. That is why I believe when Jesus arose from the grave in His glorified bodies, He could tell Thomas, go ahead Thomas, here's my hands, there's the prince. And there were still prints there. I believe that was for our sake. Verse 37 to 38 the seed is not the body that will be, but it is planted in the ground and it will morph into a plant or a tree or whatever that seed kernel is. But that seed produces a different body from what it originally is. It, the, the body that it produces is much more glorified, more expounded. But it's very much identified with it. There's a new body that comes from that seed. And he wants us to understand, so is the resurrection. There are different kinds of bodies. Not all the bodies are the same. He says in verse 39 through 41, there's the body of a fish and poultry and duck and meat and, and um, a fish. Did I say that? But, but you can taste those differences when you go to a restaurant and you order them. What's it taste like? It tastes like chicken. Everything tastes like chicken when you fry it. But there's difference, and that's not true, by the way. Uh, but there's differences of all of these different kinds of bodies, even in the celestial aspect. So he comes down to verse 42, and all of that is a preface to say, so also is the resurrection of the dead. In verses 42 through 44, the Scripture describes the nature of the resurrection body in contrast to our present body. And he's going to give us four characteristics there in 42 through 44. First of all, he says that the resurrection from the dead, the body is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. The first characteristic of a resurrected body, it is incorruptible. When you go to the grocery store, you may be in the habit of looking at the expiration date. You want to know, has it perished? Is it beyond the date? We want to know how durable things are. We want the warranty, right? Because everything in this life, in this world, is perishable. But the first characteristic is that our new bodies are going to be imperishable. Our perishable bodies are not suited for eternal glory. Eternal things. So it has to be changed into an incorruptible, imperishable body. The second thing is found there in verse 43. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. The second characteristic of a resurrected body is glory. And this is the idea of beauty. There's hope for some of us. It has to do with the beauty of these imperishable bodies because our bodies that we now have are sown 
into the ground in dishonor. When we come to the end of our lives, our bodies don't look anything like they were when they came into this world out of our mother's womb. As we grow up and we grow old, our bodies begin to shrink and our shoulders begin to slump forward and we can't stand up as straight as we used to and our hair begins to fall out and it turns either brown like mine or very gray or white like my dad's and, and our skins wrinkle up and we spend thousands of dollars on all the creams and ointments and we begin to ache and hurt And then most embarrassingly, our bodily functions just begin to stop working. Some lose their memories. And our bodies dishonor us. But it will be raised in beauty and glory. What does a body like that look like? We don't know but it is imperishably beautiful and glorious, and these bodies will not be weak. And that's the third characteristic. They are sown in weakness, but they are raised in power. The word power there is the word dunamis, from which we get dynamite. We sow these bodies in weakness, but they are raised in power. And how easy it is for us to hurt these bodies. It doesn't take much for us to break a bone, to cut our finger just slightly, and blood just skews out everywhere. The fact that these bodies are so weak will always keep the doctors in this fallen world employed. How weak these bodies are. We are particularly aware of that this day. With one of our newborns in intensive care, with the virus going on around the world, even the strongest athletes are weaker than God's microscopic virus. But our resurrection bodies will not be like the weakness of these bodies. When we are raised one day, how mighty they will be in strength, not succumbing to any weakness. They will be powerful, beauty and glory, eternal in substance and powerful, imperishable, beautiful bodies. And the fourth characteristic is given there in verse 44. It is sown in natural, but it is raised spiritual. This is where a lot of confusion comes. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. Spiritual is not an antithesis to physical, which is what so many people read into this passage. It is exactly not that. That's where the heresies of Gnosticism come, or Doceticism. Doceticism is the idea that Jesus appeared like a human, but never was a human. He was like a ghostly figure of some sort. And what is true of Jesus is true of us in this sense of the resurrection. And that's the whole teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of our resurrection. A spiritual body does not mean that which comes up out of the grave is non-substantive or non-physical. As though they are just spirit, like the angels. It does not mean that. That is not how the word spiritual is here being used. 
In fact, the clearest statement is when the Lord appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, and he comes to them in the locked room, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he says, no, I'm not a spirit. Give me some food. I will eat it. I am flesh and bones. So whatever is meant by spiritual is not a denial of physical substantive nature of a resurrected body. The word supernatural here is what we might think of as the opposite of natural. A natural body, think about the opposite, supernatural. Now that doesn't exactly capture the meaning of spiritual but it's kind of on the way to the understanding of that idea. What he's talking about here is not, is not primarily the constitution of the body, but the appropriateness, how it is fitted for the sphere in which it will exist. And so we have these four characteristics of, the, of our resurrected body. They will be imperishable. They will be glorious. They will be strong, and they will be spiritual. Now those four contrasts between the natural body and the spiritual body applies to two kinds of bodies, whether it be natural or spiritual, and he's going to expound this now in verses 45 to 49. The word natural here has the word in the Greek, not in the English, the word soul in the word. So perhaps you can think about a natural body as soul-ish. Soul-ish. It's the dwelling place of our soul. Well, the spiritual has the word spirit in it, and that is uh, self-explanatory. But what is in contrast between these two bodies is that which is soulless and that which is spiritual. What is in contrast is the nature of the body in this way. Now, a soulish body is where my soul lives in this body, which is animated by the soul. And there he's going to quote from Genesis 2-7, where man was made out of the dust of the ground, and God breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living. And the word there, being, is soul. Now, likewise, the, the spiritual body is not spirit but it is animated by the life of the Spirit and it is fitted for the eternal spiritual realm. This body has never been fitted for the eternal spiritual realm. Even in Adam before the fall, this body was not fitted for the eternal spiritual realm. See, the body that Adam had, even before the fall, had the prospects of being imperishable. In fact, it was imperishable. It was sown in dishonor. And we had those other characteristics. So, beginning in verse 44 through 49, the Scripture instructs us about these two kinds of bodies, the soulish body and the spiritual body, in accordance with three facts regarding two men. And the two bodies, the soulish body and the spiritual body, with these three facts on these two men, these two men, beginning in verse 45, there is the first Adam and there is the last Adam. There is the Adam from whom we have in Genesis 2, 
And the last Adam that we have, who is Christ himself. Those are the identity of these two men in contrast. And the three facts about them, we find there in verse 45, beginning with, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And what that passage, that verse is talking about is the power of those two men. When Adam was created, he had the essence of a soul living in his body, which animated this body, but that body was perishable. It was sown in dishonor after the fall. It was weak, and it was soulish. And in the end, he didn't have the power to keep that body going any longer. But for eternity, there would need to be a different kind of body. And when you look at the Adam, the first Adam and the last Adam, there's not an exact correspondence here. But we do see that this last Adam is a life-giving spirit. Supernaturally able to give life to people. And that's the first fact about these two men. The second fact we find is their sequence in living. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but natural, and after that, the spiritual. Here is the the sequence. The spiritual is not first, but the soulish body is first, and that's the historical thing and the way in which these came to be. The original body are the soulish bodies. The spiritual bodies will be adapted for our eternal destiny. They will be from the earth, but from a glorified earth. And they will be suited for heaven. And that combination, both from the earth and spiritually suited for heaven, tells us something about our destiny when heaven comes to earth and it meets together, and that is our eternal destiny. But the third fact regarding these two men are given us in verse 47, and it speaks about the origins of these two men. Verse 47 The first man was of the earth made of dust, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. Adam was from the earth. Jesus was from heaven. In origin, Jesus was not from the earth. Jesus, the last Adam, our federal head of this new race, and a new humanity, the the archetypical humanity that He designed for us and saved us to be, comes from heaven. The body that Jesus took at the incarnation would have, in composition, been made up of this earth coming from Mary. But it would not be suitable to return to heaven in. The body had to change. And as that body changed into a kind of body that would be suitable for heaven and also to come back on a glorified earth, we see that the origin is very important when we consider the nature of the resurrection. The difference between Jesus and us is His body never decayed in return to the dust of the ground. His resurrection maintained His body in the grave and He comes back to life three days later. Our human bodies are in accordance with these facts of these two men. 
The nature of our natural bodies that we have now, Adam's dust, if you will, the dirt of the earth, is made up of approximately 18% carbon, 10% hydrogen, 65% oxygen, 3% nitrogen. See, a lot of you are just full of hot air. Us, us. Over 60 other elements of the earth are in the human body, including silver and gold, for those of you who are concerned about your future. Our bodies are literally what the earth is made of. When you think about this, let me just take you on a very quick side note. The earth became corrupted after the fall. And when man died, his corrupted dust would return to the corrupted earth. And Romans 8 tells us that all of creation is continuing to groan and long for its eternal redemption, the glorified earth. It's waiting for that which will come at the coming of Christ. And when Christ does come to the earth, the whole earth will get changed. And so it gets a resurrection of sorts fitted for our eternal spiritual realm where heaven will come down and it will be fitted See, that's, I could say the earth will be spiritual in the resurrection. And when we rise from the new earth with the new resurrection body, there seems to be a chiastic structure in the fall. Man falls, the earth falls. The earth is glorified, man is glorified as he resurrected from the glorified dust. And therein is the beauty of revealing to us our eternal state in the nature of the resurrection. And Jesus did not want us to be ignorant of this. When Jesus arose in His resurrected body, it was a heavenly body. The body in which He was crucified was not a heavenly in the sense in which we're using it here. In fact, we have already learned that a glorified body is imperishable. And yet Christ died upon the cross. His body truly was completely dead. But in His resurrection, He has a a heavenly body that is imperishable. By the way, that doesn't mean He's made out of heaven. A heavenly body is not taking the substance of heaven. It means He is suited for that sphere. And more than that, we can say that a spiritual body is, is not made out of spirit like an angel. He denies all that. Let's not be Gnostic or Docetist. It's a spiritual body because it has been adapted to a higher life of the Spirit and in a spiritual realm where the glory of God will cover this world as the waters do cover the sea. And Christ's body is suited from the heavenly realm in which it now inhabits. But because it is substantive, it is physical, it is identified with His former body as the seed is with its fruit. And when He comes back to dwell here on the earth, He is suited for this earth. He is suited for the heavenly realm. He is suited for the whole entire glorious place. And it's appropriate when all this comes together, when He comes back. He indeed is the first fruits of our resurrection. And in all of these truths, there is wonderful encouragement. Let me give you nine quick characteristics of that heavenly body. 
Number one, it is a visible body. He appeared to his disciples. Number two, it is a substantive body. It's material. It's physical. It has physical substance. It's not ethereal. Number three, it's placeable. It occupies space and time. When the old hymn writer says, in time will be no more, I think that's inaccurate. There's an eternal state and glory in the resurrection that is still going to have space and time associated. We are created in this. Number four, it is identifiable. It is connected and identified with our present bodies, but yet glorified and different as a seed is to the fruit that it bears. There is an organic connection with our present bodies, but it is completely transformed. You can think about this as a dead seed. What comes up is a lively plant. But it's going to be identifiable. We're going to know each other in this glorious state. We're going to know the Apostle Paul. We're going to identify David and we'll, we'll know Abraham. Number five, they will possess all of our senses. They will hear, they will taste, they will feel. And Jesus showed us this give me fish, let me eat. I hear them. They touched. Come, Thomas, feel my hands. Put your hand in my side. All of those senses will still be true physically in these new spiritual bodies. Number six, they'll be functional. We will eat and drink. Amen. And we have a feast today that is a foretaste of that which is to come. But we will be eating and drinking in the glorious eternal state. And those seven, they're going to be relational. They will be relational. And number eight, The bodies will be human. They will not be angelic. What Christ said in terms of being like the angels is not being angels. And he was referring to a very specific passage when he was speaking about marriage and the future estate. But they will be real bodies and they will be human. And number nine, they will inhabit heaven and earth in the new glorious state. So our destiny is revealed to us in Christ's resurrection. It's not way off yonder when the roll is called. It's not an ethereal abstract space of sorts. It's here, yes, changed, but here. In the resurrection, when our bodies will be made like His, earth and heaven are renewed. And we, along with our new environment, will be eternally imperishable, gloriously beautiful, powerfully strong, and physically spiritual. And what a great God we have, and what a tremendous truth it is that Christ has revealed this as our first fruits of the resurrection. We know that Christ today lives. We know Christ today will come back. And we know this earth will be renewed and heaven will come down. And the glorious estate that we long for is here but glorified. And today we have a foretaste of that future being brought right into our present experience as we worship God today, not only in the beauty of holiness, but in heaven itself through the mediation of Christ who is the leader of our praise, the leader of our worship the one who declares the Father's name in the midst of the congregation.
What a great God we have, and what a tremendous thing it is of Christ's resurrection. So the next time we sing Amazing Grace, and we sing that last stanza, let's sing when we've been here 10,000 years, as opposed to there. And let us now be revived in our spirits of what great things God came to do. He loved this world, and He came to die for it, and He came to change everything about it. And ever since the resurrection, there is nothing here in the dirt, in the soil, or in the spiritual realm, in the visible realm. There is nothing that has been remained the same. It has been being changed. And one day we look forward to that time when He comes back and He dwells here forever with His people. And today is a foretaste of that. Our gracious Father, we pray that You would encourage us in the future eternal state when our loved ones will come back here and we will dwell with them and with our God. Where we will come into that eternal city that is here, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven and lights upon the earth in its glorified state that we can walk together with God in the cool of the day in the great city garden that You have established. We thank You for this grace to allow us the great privilege. We thank You for calling us, for answering us out of Zion. We thank You for the passage of Scripture that leaves us not ignorant but teaches us of these great truths. May Christ be glorified. May our hope be strengthened. May our faith be strong. And may our love continue to grow. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.